0: Welcome back to our Voices of the Reformation series. We're looking today at Heinrich Bullinger. I was joking with a few people right before this that I got corrected on his pronunciation of his last name about uh, 35 minutes ago. Uh, I used to say Bullinger. I always used to say Bullinger. You might hear people with that last name pronounce it that way in America, but it would have been Bullinger or Bulling, Bullinger. Heinrich, say, well, sometimes we'll see him called Henry Bullinger because Heinrich is just German for, for Henry. Uh, but we're going to be looking at Bullinger today. Bullinger today. A lesser-known reformer, he was the successor to Zwingli in Zurich. So if you remember Ulrich Zwingli that we looked at, Zwingli burned brightly and briefly. He didn't last as long because he died in battle, and he did a lot in a short period of time, sort of a fiery person. Uh, Bollinger was the, the successor to him who served for decades in long faithfulness. He was not put to death or anything. He died in old age served for many decades uh, as the pastor the main pastor there in Zurich had a huge impact on the reformed movement all across Europe as a result of long faithfulness and so he didn't he didn't make the splash that Zwingli did uh, or Luther but he made a a great impact slowly over time and so we'll look look at his uh, impact today he had a particular influence on English Christianity Strangely enough, he had a, a lasting impact on the Anglican Church. It has some impact on the Scottish, our Scottish heritage as well. He has some direct influence on our sort of British uh, spiritual ancestry uh, that many of us come from. But as we look at his, the, the, some of the things he grappled with in, the, in reforming the church, a couple of key questions that we'll be looking at today are, are the question of why we baptize infants. He dealt with that in a big way in his time, b- infant baptism. And then also, what does unity look like? not being Catholic. There was great Catholic unity in a certain sense of being under the Pope and being part of this Catholic Church. Protestants had to figure out what does it look like to be unified, and, and Bollinger was a big part of that, uh, helping with that Protestant unity. He also has one of the best beards in the Reformation. Uh, it's only going to get better. We're going to see some later pictures of him. Uh, maybe until we get to John Knox might be the best beard that we have uh, up to this point. Today, we're going to look at his family life and conversion. Uh, some of that's just sort of more overview of his life, family life and conversion. And then we'll look at his covenant theology and then at his unifying efforts. So sort of three general sections before we get to some application today. Family life and conversion, then covenant theology, and then uh, some of his unifying efforts. He lived from 1504 to 1575. So when, when did the Reformation kick off with the 95 Theses? What year? 1517, right? Okay, so we're going to get that drilled into our heads. So he's born before... The beginning of the Reformation, but not long before. Uh, So he's he's not one of the very first ones in this. But 1504 to 1575, born in 1504, he was actually the son of a priest. Kids, why does that why is that strange? He's son of a Catholic priest. Priests can't get priests weren't supposed to get married. His father, strangely enough, he was a parish priest in in Bremgarten, B R E M G A R T E N, Bremgarten in Switzerland, about 10 miles west of Zurich. And he had this arrangement where he had, had a formal, uh, established a formal relationship with this woman and essentially lived with her as his wife because he paid tribute to his bishop regularly and got away with it because of that. So it gives you a little picture of the state of the church at the time. Had taken a vow of celibacy, but as long as he paid his bishop, he got to have this wife and kids, and he had all these children. And they had a home, and he claimed all these children, and it was just a family life. And that's just the way it was. Again, the celibacy thing was not working. Uh, Bollinger was, or Bollinger, Heinrich was the uh, fifth child, I think, in that family. He, he, there's one story in one of the accounts. D'Aubigny, one of the historians, rec- records an account of his father objecting objecting to indulgences. So his father was not. Uh, not a Protestant in any sense at that point, but his father, as a priest, did not like this indulgence seller coming and taking his people's money. There may be some of that, uh, there was some some concern with what was going on in the Catholic Church just in his home, in his upbringing. So he, but he grew up, was a gifted child, and he had some uh, near misses as a child that are often recorded. I will say, I wanna say up front here, I'm relying on a lot of secondary sources for this. I've not read a lot of Bullinger myself, and there aren't as many things as readily available in the resources that I had. So um, I'm trusting some secondary sources here, but several of them pointed out that when he was a child he had the plague. Plague went through often at that time. He had a, a quite bad case of the plague and that one of them said that he was on his way to be buried. They thought he had died. His parents had thought he had died and then they saw a sign of life and, and he was alive and they didn't bury him. So he, he n- nearly died of the plague. Also as a small child, he was almost kidnapped, almost abducted, and there was a a man had, was starting to take him off. Of he lured him to him on the road or something and was taking him away when bystanders saw what was going on and intervened and he was spared. A couple of near misses early in his life, you could see God's providence in caring for him and preserving him for the work that God had planned for him. In 1519, he went to study at Cologne. Anybody know where Cologne is? Germany. So he went off to Germany. He grew up in Switzerland. He went off to Germany for... University in 1519, and at Cologne he encountered Erasmus's writings. Erasmus was a humanist who was very critical of the church, who eventually did not end up in the Protestant movement, but but encouraged a lot of the Protestants. Erasmus and then Luther's writings. He became especially interested in Luther's writings when there was a book burning. The Catholic Church staged a the church staged a book burning of Luther's writings, and bollinger said, "Huh." Maybe I should pay attention to what this guy's writing. If the church wants to burn them, maybe I should find out what's going on in these writings. And so he that has a way of happening in history. Uh, when you try to quash something, it only increases the interest. Wollinger was very interested in Luther's writings. And, and during that time, as a, as a student, he began studying what Luther was saying. He became very committed to the authority of Scripture and and said if anything i read is against scripture i'm not going to believe it he said I, i'm going to believe what the bible says and even if a church father or a church council or any of these things say something that goes against scripture i'm, I'm going to believe scripture first and during that time he also came to uh, conviction of, of salvation by faith alone having read luther and understood these things um, these core reformation principles of scripture the authority of scripture and then salvation by faith alone he ended up becoming a teacher of a monastery or uh, some some places call it a convent at kappel k a p p e l at kappel back in switzerland he he became the teacher of this monastery but he told them up front he said i'm not taking monastic vows i'm not going to become a monk and you have to let me teach whatever i teach find in the bible and they said okay so he came into this monastery and didn't become a monk Just could teach whatever he wanted to teach from the Bible, in the process reformed this whole monastery. So all of these monks became, I mean it's functionally, I don't know that every single one, but basically the whole monastery became Protestant, became reformed through his teaching of the Bible and he he just transformed that whole community. Uh, He was there from 1523 to 1529 and it did a great work in, in teaching and preaching there to those monks. I meant to say, I want to point out that he came to faith, saving faith, through Luther's writings, and it's important to remember this close connection of the Lutheran side of the Reformation and the the Reformed side. Bollinger became to faith through Lutherans, but he very much became a a key part of the Reformed movement. At their core, there was so much commonality there, and we need to not drive that wedge too deep between them. It was too bad that there was such a deep wedge. He came to faith through the Lutherans and uh, then ended up a great leader in the Reformed side of things. In 1527, he met Zwingli. He visited Zurich and met Zwingli, and Zwingli took an interest in him, and that started a relationship of training. that He would come back regularly to to Zurich, and uh, Zwingli would train him and and teach him, and he was very impressed with Zwingli. So he he came back and became a a key part of this Reformed church there in, in Switzerland. He wanted to get married... So if we go to the next slide, uh, oh, sorry, we're gonna have a younger picture of him. This is him before his beard really took took root there. Uh, so this is, Swing, or this is, sorry, this is Bullinger at, at a younger age. If we go on to the next slide. He wanted to get married and he found out, or he he visited a convent that had basically been disbanded because all the nuns became reformed. <laughs> uh, so he had this sort of trend happening in these, these monasteries of people who are spiritually zealous and then they find out the truth of the gospel and they become they're still zealous but they don't want to be nuns and monks anymore because they they understand the bible there was he went to this uh convent when there were two nuns left still there and one of them was um anna Addischweiler. name we'll just go with anna for now his this young woman named anna became quite uh uh, infatuated with her. I don't know if that's the right word, but he, he, he liked her a lot, and he sent her a proposal by letter. And I just want to read a, a little excerpt here of his proposal. Uh, he said, but why? He wrote this huge long letter. I th- someone said it was like 14 pages or something. Um, near the end, he says, but why are, why are many words necessary? The sum of it all is this, that the greatest, surest treasure that you will find in me is fear of God, piety, fidelity, and love, which with joy I will show you, and labor, earnestness, and industry, which will not be wanting in temporal things. Concerning high nobility and many thousand golden, that's money, I can say nothing to you, but I know that what is necessary to us will not be wanting, for Paul says we brought nothing into the world, and we will take nothing out. Therefore, if we have clothing and food, it is enough. And she was apparently convinced by this letter, but the problem was her mother was not a fan. Um, One source said that she would only let her daughter marry someone rich, and uh, Bollinger was not rich, and would never be rich. And uh, so they actually waited until her mother passed away a couple years later. Um, that she waited and honored her mother's wishes, and they did not get married until uh, her mother passed away, and then they got married in 1529. Um, and she seems to have been uh, another of these remarkable women in the time of the Reformation. Uh, there's there's one fascinating account that's, that's, uh, of, of her, uh, her tenacity. Uh, Bollinger had become pastor of his father's parish in Bremgarten. His father had actually become reformed, and the people didn't like it and got rid of him, and then somehow Bullinger himself came back, or got to be pastor there. Anyway, he was pastor of his father's parish there in Bremgarten, and then in 1531, when Zurich lost the battle where Zwingli died, if you remember, Zwingli died in battle, Zurich lost his battle against the Catholic forces and the Catholics started taking over a lot of these areas. They were sweeping through. And this Catholic army was about to arrive in Bremgarten. And so Zwingli fled for his life because the pastors were, had targets on their backs. He fled for his life and went to Zurich, leaving behind his wife, Anna, and their one-and-a-half-year-old and their six-month-old. And she found herself with, I think it said, 30, 30 Catholic soldiers to be, to, to, how, to be housed in their home. And she said, enough of this. And she took her two babies and she went to get out of the city and got to the gate and the, the guard at the gate would not open the gate for her. And, and if this is to be, I, I haven't found the original sources on this, but it says that she, rest, she she took the key by force from this guard, unlocked the gate and got out of there and hiked 10 miles with her one and a half year old and her six month old to rejoin Bullinger in Zurich. So pretty amazing. Amazing lady, um, quite quite hardworking with the, uh, the other accounts of her um, tireless labors and maintaining a home much like Katerina Luther's home, where they had this large, not wealthy, but a large home in the sense of lots of people coming and going, many children. They had 11 children and adopted other children. They took in Zwingli's wife and children when Zwingli died and took care of them. Um, she had students coming. She had refugees coming and going all the time. Just incredible labors in uh, maintaining a home on not a whole lot of resources um, and, and serving the church in an amazing way that way. Yes, mean Sorry. Yes, this is Anna. I'm sorry. This is, this is uh, Anna Bollinger. She was a great help to, to him. He She died before he did, we'll get there here in a a little bit, but when she died, others were telling him to remarry and he said there there will never be another Anna. And so he did not remarry after she died. And once again, this was a new and powerful part of the Reformation to have the leading spiritual leaders be family men. And we talked about that with Luther that, you know, Bollinger's own father had managed to be a family man anyway generally speaking, that the great spiritual leaders prior to this had not been family men. And so they, these leaders had an opportunity to show what it looked like to be a husband, uh, to be husband and wife, to have children, and to, to bless people with their homes. Another side note on his parents, he actually, they got married when he was 25. His, his parents became reformed later, and they actually got married, and he got to see his, his mother marry his father. And so that was, a, it was an encouraging thing. So that was sort of his family life, his conversion, and uh, one of the key things that Bollinger is responsible for was articulating covenant theology. You can go to the next slide there. This is another guy. You can see his beard is getting even better here. Uh, Bollinger was incredibly res- or, uh, influential in our thinking um, on covenant theology. There were great debates over baptism during this time. So in the Reformation you had uh, the the tradition in the church of baptizing infants in the catholic church do you know why they baptized what they believed the baptism accomplished getting rid of original sin so they thought you baptize the baby because then their original sin is gone and they even had midwives uh, approved to baptize babies because if the baby is about to die they've got to baptize them because they don't baptize them their sins not washed away and then they'll go to limbo or whatever it is that they, they won't get to actually go to heaven and so they, this sort of a superstitious view of baptism that it was it actually saved people it actually washed away the original sins lutherans ended up in a similar place a little bit different but the lutherans said that baptism saves the baby but it's by giving the baby faith in the act of baptism so they would say it's still baptism by faith or salvation by faith but it's giving this baby faith in the moment So, functionally, it ends up looking the same as the Catholic view because it actually saves the baby and then you can lose your salvation later. Now, the Anabaptists are what were called the radicals at the time, that we'll be studying in in weeks in the future. The Anabaptists looked at that and said, that's not what the Bible teaches. Baptism is only for believers. They aren't actually the ancestors of today's Baptists, but they're ancestors in their thinking of that idea that only believers can be baptized. Zwingli and then Bollinger after him had to deal with a lot of this Anabaptist question in, Zwing- in Zurich and they debated them a lot They had a lot of these discussions and so Bollinger's looking at scripture and he's saying okay We've got this tradition in in the church and it's a long-standing tradition that that we baptize our babies The Anabaptists are saying it shouldn't be that it's only salvation is only by faith well, What does scripture say? Zwingli is the, the first to really articulate in the time of the Reformation the first to articulate the connection between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament. But it's Bollinger who really develops this and who makes a really clear and, I think, good case for this connection between the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament and the sign of the covenant in the New Testament. And that all the way along, in God's peop- in God's people... Uh, the the families of the children of believers get to be part of the covenant community. You see that in Abraham, you see that all the way through the Old Testament, and then you see households being baptized in the New Testament, and it's Bullinger that really um, articulated a lot of that, defended a lot of that, uh, that in in both Old and New Testaments the children of believers are holy. Covenant promises are for us and for our children, and you see whole house, like I said, see whole households baptized in the New Testament. So when you hear talk about covenant children, our covenant children in the church. Um, that's the kind of stuff that Bullinger was saying. And he, you see that in his writings or in his sermons. He talks about our covenant, being in the covenant, being covenant children, that kind of thing. And he really provided the defense, the biblical defense, for this practice of infant baptism. It's not just tradition, even though we don't believe what the, the Catholic Church teaches about it. Um, and so he was influential that way. Uh, he was also influential in unifying the Reformed movement. So we can go to the next slide there. He was responsible in 1549 for uh, coming up with what's called the consensus tigurinus, uh, tigurinus, t-i-g-u-r-i-n-u-s. And this was a document come up with, that was uh, put together be- with, between Bullinger and Calvin. We haven't gotten to John Calvin yet, but John Calvin is part of the French part of Switzerland. We're going to get into some more geography, I think, in the weeks ahead. Calvin's in the French part of Switzerland. But Bollinger's in the German part of Switzerland, Calvin's in Geneva, Bollinger's in Zurich, and uh, historically, uh, they had some different views on the Lord's Supper. Z- Zwingli had said, it's just a memorial, it's, there's nothing spiritual happening actually in the act of taking the Lord's Supper, Jesus is not present in the Lord's Supper, that, in, in some of his early views, Zwingli may have come around a little bit on this later, but Calvin had later on was going to say, Jesus is spiritually present in the supper. We spiritually feed on him in the act of eating the bread and drinking the cup. We spiritually feed on Christ. And so it is a blessing. It's a means of grace to us. Bollinger was a little sort of in between the two of them, but he looked, at, he and Calvin looked at the reform movement across Switzerland and other parts of the Europe and, and they said, we need, to, we need to be unified here. We need to find a way to come together. And they worked on it and they, they got together and and wrote up this document that that they could both agree to they still didn't agree perfectly on their view of the lord's supper i, I don't think that from what i can tell calvin still believed in more of a more of, a, a, of the grace being given in the act of eating the bread and breaking the cup more so than Bullinger. but they looked at this and they were able to write something that they could both agree to and and Bolinger. There, there was a, a wording choice that Willinger said, no, I'd really rather let's use this word, and, and Calvin was okay with that. And they were able to come to an agreement that unified the Reformed movement. Because really the question was, they'd already seen the Lutherans and the Reformed split, right, they'd had that Zwingli and Luther sitting across, from the table, across the table from each other and Luther pounding on the table, you know, this is my body, and they couldn't agree because the Lord suffered ever since Luther and Reformed have been split. And they looked at the Reformed movement and said, are we gonna do this again? Or can we be unified? Can we find a way to, uh, are we enough in agreement that we can uh, be, be unified? And they were. And that's from there on out, the reformed movement didn't split over the Lord's supper. That, that was essentially, it provided this consensus that they could move forward with. Also, uh, he was responsible for writing the second Helvetic confession. A second Helvetic confession. Helvetica was the name, the Roman name for Switzerland. So in Latin, Helvetica is the name of Switzerland. Anyone who's read the Asterix uh, comic books, Asterix the Gaul, he goes and visits Helvetica. Maybe that was just me growing up. But um, Helvetica is Switzerland. The second Helvetic confession is the second Swiss confession. And so in 1562, he wrote this confession and revised it in 1564. And it's just a wonderful summary of the Reformed faith. It's much like our Westminster Confession, and it just goes through different categories in theology and states what the Bible says. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't agree with absolutely everything in the Second Helvetic Confession, but it was a wonderful summary of the Reformed faith. He originally wrote it just for as his own statement of faith, but it became, as people shared it, it became um, well-recognized as a good summary of the faith. It became adopted by many nations, actually, as nations were adopting covenants. It was adopted in Hungary, or sorry, in Scotland in 1566. So before we had our own Westminster Confession, you know, 80 years uh, before our own confession, we, the Scottish, said, yes, we agree with this confession. This is, we agree with these truth sta- statements of truth. It was adopted in Hungary in 1567, France in 1571, Poland in 1578. He created this Reformed unity across Europe by being able to express the Reformed faith in a in a way that's biblical, that is not trying to get into too much of the weeds, in a way that many people can sign on to and say, yes, we believe this. And, and this is really important because at the time, it, uh, Protestantism had splintered a little bit. You had the Lutherans and the Radicals and the Reformer reformed. And there's this question of where does, where does unity come from? We don't have a pope to rally behind. Uh, we don't have just the, the absolute authority of the tradition of the church to rally behind. We believe in Scripture as the highest authority, but that doesn't mean we think that anything goes, right? We don't just say, well, here's your Bible, think whatever you want to think. We do believe that there is a right interpretation of scripture. None of us have it perfectly, but we do believe that there is a right interpretation of scripture. And there should be a general body of belief that we can all agree to. And this is the history of, there's a history of that of creeds earlier in the church, and that developed into confessions in the Reformation, where we say, these are things that we see are absolutely clear in scripture. And we're going to summarize that, and we're going to all sign on to it together, and this is, we are confessional. We, we believe these things together. Uh, we are not, we don't say, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. We say, yes, the Bible is our highest authority, but we believe this, the, the teaching of Scripture is such that we can collect it together into something that we can agree on together, and say this is the proper interpretation of Scripture, as opposed to uh, some of these other ideas that are not uh, the true gospel this will begin a trend of confessions. He wasn't the first to write a confession. We had and wrote a confession that we saw already. But there's going to be more and more of these confessions that, that are based on each other, that, that eventually resulted in the Westminster Confession that is our own confession in our church still today. And so he had a great influence in unifying the Reformed Church that way. He also had... If we can go to the next picture again. I think we can get back to Bulling, Bullinger himself. Go ahead to the next slide there. Okay, the beard just keeps getting wider. So we're we're doing well here. He also wrote what are called the decades, decades meaning uh, sets of ten. They're not decades of years, but five sets of ten sermons. So fifty sermons. They're called Bollinger's decades, and they were a summary of the Christian faith. So they were they were basically a systematic theology, but in the form of sermons. And he wrote these fifty sermons that cover. The, the cover of the reformed faith it was it became interestingly enough became incre- incredibly influential in England. Uh, the English had gotten to be fans of Bullinger because uh, when Mary Tudor, uh, more affectionately known as Bloody Mary by Protestants, came to power in England and reinstated Catholicism and started burning Protestants at the stake, a lot of Protestants left England and many of them came to Switzerland and a lot of them came to zurich and so the Bollinger home found itself inundated with all of these English um, refugees, but they came to love Bollinger, and he trained them a lot. And so whenever he wrote these decades, these this summary of Christian belief, they got taken back to England and actually became the standard, uh, the basis of, of theological training in the Anglican Church for many years. He was Swiss, but he became his work became the standard for theological training in, in the Anglican Church. It is interesting to, to note that because one of Bullinger's weak points that we would say, looking at his scriptural teaching, one of his weak points was that he believed that the state had every right to control the church. He believed, just like Zwingli before him, he said that he had the state do all the reforming in the church. He was appointed as basically the head of the church in, in Zurich there. So his church government was not, not real biblical. It's interesting to note that he was very reformed in other respects, but he was fine with the, the state controlling the church. Which means, which makes, uh, and so the English liking that makes sense. (laughs) If you know your Anglican history, the Anglicans, the Queen controls the church, or the King controls the church. The historic Anglicans are very reformed and very scriptural in other respects. And so, Bollinger, being uh, fine with the state controlling things, but also very reformed, makes sense of his impact on the Anglican church later. But he, he had an incredible reach across Europe. One source said that he has 12,000, we have 12,000 of his letters still today, writing letters constantly all around Europe. And this was a united movement across Europe and, and corresponding and traveling and ref, you know, refugees going to one place and going back to the other place. And he was right sort of at the center of it all for many years. And he was corresponding and encouraging and training and, and all of these things. And you can see that he has this long, steady influence in bolstering this reformed movement. Uh, all across Europe. It would not go on forever though, he got the plague in 1564, was um, near death in 1564, and his wife Anna cared for him, and then got the plague herself in the process, and then he, he recovered and she died. Uh, so another wonderful evidence of her, her sacrificial love, caring for him and then dying in the plague herself. He was sickly for quite a while after that, it was never quite himself again, and ended up dying in 1575. And passing the reins to I believe it was his adopted son who actually took over from him in in uh, as the lead pastor there in Zurich But thinking a little bit about some applications for today, we are indebted to uh, again to Bollinger for his covenant theology for understanding the continuity of the Bible the Old Testament's not some totally different thing and then we have the new gospel in the New Testament it's one covenant of grace If you don't know that, if you struggle with that, if you go back to the Old Testament and you read it and you say, what is this all about? It seems like this whole different thing. I would love to help you with that, but also dig into those things and see that there's one covenant of grace all the way through the Bible, God's plan of redemption. Salvation was always by faith, by grace, and it had different forms. The the outward forms were different, but Bollinger did a wonderful job of helping us rediscover that and, and champion that. So, so do read your Old Testament, see that continuity, that covenant continuity all through Scripture, and be very thankful that we get to include our children in that covenant community. But also just, he's an example to us in, in confessional unity, and working for unity. He worked for unity with the Lutherans early on and couldn't get there. He tried. He couldn't get the unity with the Lutherans, but he fought hard for unity with the other Reformed churches and, and accomplished a lot of that we've got to figure out a way to be unified with our brothers in christ who share the belief in the same gospel even when we differ on other things and and it's so hard to know and it's always been hard to know historically what's worth fighting for what's worth dividing over what's not reading some of those historic confessions can be really helpful for us to look back and say what did they unify around what was important enough to them to put in this confession what things did they leave out and say we can have some diversity on this and and really, we need to strive for unity. To strive for uh, to not just be lone rangers, not be um, uh, sectarians, and, and thinking like we're the only true believers of true church, but finding ways to be unified with with brothers and sisters to share the same gospel. Go, actually, I think there might is there another slide, or is that it? I can't remember if I had another. We're just back to the back to the, sort of the average beard here. So and we can go back to that. Any questions today? Robin. Was there a first Helvetic Confession? Yes, there was a first Helvetic Confession Helvetic Confession. He was a co-author of it with several of the other Swiss reformers, but it must not have been quite as good because it, <laughs> it didn't it didn't take off the same way. I, don't, I can't remember. It was it was a few years before that that one. I think it might have been in the fifteen thirties. It just didn't take off in the same way. What churches now because I feel like maybe we studied this at one point, maybe we didn't, but what churches now would use the Helvetic Confession? So. I don't know so I know it was included in the UP Book of Confessions that's still technically part of the PCUSA Book of Confessions. So it's still technically there. PCUSA wouldn't subscribe in in practice it doesn't subscribe to a lot of those things. I don't know of any other churches right now that have it as their confession. Because eventually you have the Dutch Reformed have the Heidelberg Catechism and the Canons of Dort. Right, so we have the Heidelberg and then Canons of Dort and the Belgic Confession. So those and then we have, in the Scottish tradition, we have Westminster Confession. You see a lot of commonality there, but I don't... Somebody could correct me on that, and um, somebody comes back later and let me know. Uh, I don't think there's a church today that is committed to it, but it's a lot of the same content as the Belgian Confession and the Westminster Confession. Yes? So I'm recalling the Bible. Oh, I don't know. That's... It seems like Okay. Yeah. Ed, Ed. Sure. Yeah. Ed's saying there there might be a Bollinger study Bible, which that would be great. Uh, we do have a lot of his material, you know, left. And he's he's left a lot of excellent works, so I could see them taking that and making it into a study Bible format, having his notes. That could be. I don't know. it's the 14-page letter to Anna still around. I believe the letter is still available. I couldn't find a copy of it right out, right, quickly. I was, it wasn't my real focus as I was studying, but I. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is it requiring a 14 page letter? Yeah, I don't know. I, 14. <laughs> oh, that's right, Helvetica is a font too. That's right. I don't know the relationship between that and Switzerland, but yes, yeah. Bill. The, the striking thing to me is, it's people together and it's, you're right that it's, it's necessary in the church, but it's also necessary in every, every part of our lives, where, especially in the social today, where there's so much division. Yep. And I'm right, I won't miss you. Yes. Mindset we see. Yeah, it's, so, so much, it's a lot easier not to be unified in some ways. We end up, it bears a lot of bad fruit in our lives, but it's a lot easier to just cut ties, burn bridges, just be done with it, right, in every part of our lives. And it's hard, hard work to be unified. Um, but we of all people, having Christ, having the Spirit, same Spirit, the one baptism, we should be able to to be unified. Yeah. Jack? Looks like the Bible study is a different Bollinger. Oh, is it a different Bollinger? Okay. Uh, but just the number of letters amazed me. That's a letter a yeah. day, every day, for over 32 years. That's And that's about right. He was there 40 years as the pastor there. So that's about right. Yes. The scale of, of number of letters he wrote is just staggering, yes. Um, I will say, actually, if you come across, since you said that about the study Bible, there is a thing called Bollingerism that is a heresy that's related to somebody else named Bullinger, or Bullinger. So just keep on the lookout for that. I don't know if that's related to the study Bible or the study notes at all, but I did come across that briefly. I don't know much more about that right now. But Before I close in prayer real quick, I should say I've seen others refer to Bollingerism as a heresy. I don't want to throw that word around lightly. I don't know enough about it to say what it is. So... I shouldn't so lightly use the word heresy, but there is something called Bollingerism out there that's separate from this guy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your grace to us that you have poured out uh, on us through Jesus Christ and for that wonderful covenant, that promise that is based on your faithfulness and that you will be faithful to save us even though we uh, were dead in our trespasses and sins. We thank you for that covenant and we thank you for the unity that we have in Christ as well. We pray that you would help us to put in the hard work to be unified with our brothers and sisters in Christ, in whatever ways that we can. and pray that you bless us in this week ahead, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.